Hi, you are listening to Mediation Station. This is your host, Greg Fenton. Each week we explore topics and ideas related to the experience of people with conflict and look to promote the profession of conflict resolvers. So tonight I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm here alone. If you do want to call, you're welcome to do so. Phone number is 416-785-0680. I have a few articles that I put aside, want to read, share. If you have comment on that, you're welcome to call in. I'm going to play some music in the background and uh, speak. I have a few articles here. Just to note the song, Anyone But Me, it was written by Sandy Gemmel from uh, Toronto. It's a single. I don't know if you uh, listen to the lyrics. It's an anti-bullying song. Sandy is uh, well-known in terms of Nelson the Giant, which is an anti-bullying program. And she goes to a lot of the schools in the uh, Toronto area. Playing in the background is a song called Metal in You by Lara McMillan from the uh, album Lara Assembly. So all the music I'm going to play tonight is local talent, all Canadian artists, stuff that uh, hasn't made it into the commercial vein per se, for the most part, though uh, individuals I'm sure would like the uh, opportunity to get some better promotion. So I got an article called Mediation, Not the Courts, is Key in Avoiding the War. When Roizen O'Shea applied for a judicial separation from her husband, it seemed there was only one way to go about it, and that was by plastering on the war paint and marching into court. It was acrimonious, messy, and unpleasant. She was angry. The adversarial court setting encouraged more anger. It was costing her a fortune. It was literally like war. If I had known more in the beginning what I know now, my separation might never have got so hard. What she knows now is considerable. She has a law degree, a PhD in family law, is a, and is on a crusade to prove empirically that mediation works better for estranged couples in court. So she makes a joke of it now, but it was pretty devastating at the time. It was acrimonious, as she says. In my experience, divorces that end up contested in court are acrimonious. She compares it to bereavement, like losing someone close to you, or to a trauma like a car crash. The feeling I had were closer to bereavement at the time, even though I was the one who ended the marriage. Her judicial separation took three years and cost her 55,000 pounds in legal fees. She emerged the other end feeling completely patronized and demoralized through the whole process. So much so that as she was going through the judicial separation, she went back to college to study law so she could organize her divorce without the hefty legal fees. She did her own divorce, as she puts it. And in 2010, and she, she co-founded a uh, mediation practice in Waterford, which is in English, that same year. In England, I should say. She went on to produce an award-winning tomb of empirical research for a doctorate in law that took her four years, observing 1,087 cases of marriage breakdown. As a result of her research, we now know how divorce and separation cases rocketed through the overcrowded judicial system. The shortest consent divorce took just 30 seconds. Contested divorces took an average of just 20 minutes each. And in 95% of the cases, the family home went to the wife. But her biggest concern was the level of often avoidable conflict she witnessed among estranged couples crammed into crowded courts and the absence of the voice of the child. Now she is passionate about taking family law out of the conflict zone of court instead of going to a solicitor 
first. She says the first port of call should be professional mediator trained in dispute resolution. And she's intent on proving that it works. She says that the results of a pilot project she is conducting with Waterford Institute of Technology shows that 95% of couples who agree to engage in mediation after the first session will find some common ground, reaching agreements on things like access to the children or maintenance. Lower legal bills are certainly one of the upsides of mediation, but as she points out, separating couples will always need a good lawyer. Perhaps the most important benefit of mediation is the opportunity to achieve divorce by peaceful means. If you come apart and you are supported in coming apart in a less confrontational way, there is every possibility you can be amicable. But I think the war in the courtroom destroys that possibility. So that's from the internet. It was uh, dated May 22nd, 2016. And as I mentioned, it's from England. So I got another article to share. 13 Steps to Success at Mediation by David P. Stark. It's from February 2016 from ADR Perspectives. 13 Steps to Success at Mediation offers a number of practical pointers on how to get an agreement once you are at mediation. Suggestions relating to process, such as have food available, don't respond in anger, collect yeses and one-off examples relating to things like late entrance to the mediation and calling a friend will help the parties reach a settlement. So... I participated in my first mediation in 1991. The mediator kept the parties focused, created an agenda. Issues were put on this agenda, and when we were struck, stuck, we moved to something else. At the end of the day, the case settled. The parties were satisfied. So, books like Getting the Yes, Getting Past No, focused on the dynamics of the negotiation process, communication, exploring positions and interests to find common ground. The matching of interests allowed parties to move past the positional fight. These books also brought in game theory, sociology, and psychology. Thinking fast and slow and mistakes were made, focused on what is going on in the mind of the individual negotiator, what biases and what mind traps existed. Questions like, what did negotiators struggle with in terms interpretation of facts? How did cognitive dissonance arise? How do we account for the perception of facts we explored? After each mediation, I would make notes about the type of case. I found that notwithstanding the type of mediation, there were a number of trends that started to emerge. So, 13 steps as provided by mediator David Stark. When you have a dispute that may turn into a conflict, think mediation early. Mediation helps increase the opportunity of early cost-effective settlement. Number two, we have biases that affect judgments. We seek evidence that will support how we view the world. Confirmation bias. We get attached to our cases. Advocacy bias. And outcomes and then devalue what the opposition says. Reactive discounting. We miss opportunities to settle because our mind is closed to new information. Number three. Preparation helps predict success. Mediation is not about making new law. Rather, finding a precedent. Confirm date, time, and place of mediation. This is now easy to do with email and texting. Give some thought about food. Well-fed negotiators make better, more rational decisions. Low-cost, high-yield. Skills like good manners and being on time are important. Number four. Mediation is a dynamic process. As long as the parties stay at the mediation, they are making progress. Help move the mediation forward. Seek to collaborate. 
Be prepared to compete. Learn to be versatile. Number five, spend time thinking about where you want to end up. It might take five to eight moves to settle. Set a floor position, and no matter what, don't go below the preset floor unless that position is well thought out. Number six, use opening statements to get clarity on both the content and process. In many cases, having the parties speak helps humanize the process and reinforces that the mediation is really about working with the clients to help them settle the case. Number seven, listen to the other side's opening statement. Prepare open-ended questions. Take notes and notice body language, especially from the litigants. This will tell you more of the story. Positions will be communicated and only after questioning will the interests emerge. Number eight, pay attention to the verbal and nonverbal messages coming from the other side. Over half of the communication we send out is nonverbal. The reality the lawyers work with is different from the realities the clients have and is different from what the mediator may be following. Number nine, hold your emotions in check. Acknowledge what is said and when you feel the emotions rise, take a break. While emotions are running high, the brain can think rationally. When upset or in doubt, or if you need time to think, take a break. 10. Try to understand what the other party is saying. Listening for understanding doesn't mean agreement. Find places where you can agree and collect yeses. This will bind the parties to the process. Number 11, see the resolution of the problem as a common objective and will help the parties move from listening to understanding agreement. 12, neither rush nor delay the closing of the deal. If the matter is concluded, have something signed before the parties leave. Memory is fallible. 13, occurring situations. Non-parties, attendees who are not parties, allowed by consent. Experts, in some cases where there is a technical evidence being relied on. Late entrance to the mediation, almost without exception, these are non-parties. Also, previous offers in a mediation where the parties have some prior negotiation and the briefs don't reflect this. I ask the question, where do we go from here? Offers to be reflected on, calling a friend, split the difference. After all the science and the art of negotiation, if the parties are still apart, we may see split the difference. What to split and how large the difference, it will depend on the type of case. So these are uh, suggestions by Mr. Stark, uh, some of which, uh, you know, I would uh, provide for in a process that I would facilitate, and others that I might not, or I might modify from how it's expressed. I just want to note uh, the uh, person singing in the background is uh, from a group called Marty Jade. The specific person singing, her name is Marty Edelstein, one of my colleagues and uh, cohorts at York University, etc. And this is called Happy Face from The Telling, a CD that she did, one of two. Listen more. I'm just doing something different tonight. It's a long weekend and uh, didn't want to uh, feel uh, about getting out a, a visitor to come on and talk. Next week we'll return to the usual format having somebody come in and visit and talk about something and we'll share and we'll explore that together and uh, deal with it so 
Nocturne at Night, some music that uh, compiled over the years. I used to play, actually, on Mediation Station a couple songs each show, and then, I don't know, about two or three years ago, went away from that format and went with uh, more talk time, storytelling. So I got another article here called uh, 30 Red Flags of Manipulative People by The Minds Journal, January 13, 2016. There are a lot of phenomenal studies on the traits and characteristics of psychopaths. For professional research, check out Cleckley's Criteria or Hairs, Psychopathy, Psychopathy Checklist. A quick Google search ought to do the trick. The red flags in this book are intended to supplement those resources. So what's different about this list? Well, for one, it's specifically about relationships, but it's also about you. Each point requires introspection and self-awareness. Because if you want to spot toxic people, you cannot focus entirely on their behavior. That's only half the battle. You must also come to recognize the looming red flags in your own heart. Then you will be ready for anything. Number one. I'm not going to read all these, but... You feel on edge around this person, but you still want them to like you. You... What? You find yourself writing off most of their questionable behavior as accidental or insensitive because you're in constant competition with others for their attention and praise. They don't seem to care when you leave their side. They can just as easily move on to the next source of energy. Number two, they withhold attention and undermine your self-esteem. After first hooking you with praise and flattery, they suddenly become reclusive and uninterested. They make you feel desperate and needy, ensuring that you are always the one to initiate contact or physical intimacy. Number three, plasters your Facebook page with compliments, flattery, songs, and poems. They text you dozens, if not hundreds of times per day. You come to rely on this over-communication as a source of confidence. Four, quickly declares you their soulmate. And for some reason, you don't find it creepy. They tell you how much they have in common with you. On the first few dates, you do most of the talking and they just can't believe how perfect you are for them. 5. Compares you to everyone else in their life. Ex-lovers, friends, family, friend, members, and uh, your eventual replacement. When idealizing, they make you feel special by telling you how much better you are than these people. When devaluing, they use these comparisons to hurt you. Another one. Lies and excuses. There is always an excuse for everything. Even things that don't require excusing. They make up lies faster than you can question them. They will always blame others. It is never their fault. They spend more time rationalizing their behavior than improving it. Another one. Insults you with condescending, joking sort of attitude. Smirks when you try to express yourself. Teasing becomes the primary mode of communication in your relationships. They subtly belittle your intelligence and achievements. If you point this out, they call you hypersensitive and crazy. You find yourself playing detective. It's never happened in any other relationship, but suddenly you're scrolling back years on their Facebook page and albums. Same with your ex. You're seeking answers to a feeling you can't quite explain. Why don't you reach in and rip out my so that's uh, Rip Out My Heart by Lara Assembly from her uh, CD titled Lara Assembly. 
good song to play while I'm talking about relationships and, uh, what is it, 30 red flags of manipulative people as I continue. Another one is, accuses you of emotions that they are intentionally provoking. They will call you jealous after blatantly flirting with their ex over social networking for the world to see. They will call you needy after intentionally ignoring you for three days straight. Another one, cannot put themselves in your shoes or anyone else's for that matter. You find yourself desperately trying to explain how they might feel if you were treating them this way. And they just, they just stare at you blankly. Focuses on your mistakes and ignores your own, their own, sorry. If they're two hours late, don't forget that you were once five minutes late to the, your first date. If you point out their mistakes, they will always be quick to turn the conversation back on you. Another one. Suddenly and completely bored by you. Gives you the silent treatment and becomes very annoyed that you seem to be interested in continuing the passionate relationship that they created you are now a chore to them another one the ultimate hypocrite they have extremely high expectations for fidelity respect and adoration after the ideolation phase they will give none of this back uh, let's see here multitasking they will give none of this back to you they will cheat lie insult and degrade but you are expected to remain perfect uh, let's see what else an unusual amount of crazy people in their past. Any ex-partner or friend who did not find, uh, come crawling back to them will likely be labeled jealous, bipolar, an alcoholic, or some other nasty smear. They will speak about you the same way to their next target. Another one. Frequently comments about what you're wearing and how you look. They try to arrange you. You become obsessed with your appearance, noticing flaws that likely don't even exist. During and after the relationship, you will spend significantly more time in front of the mirror. Thank you to our member, Quandralust, for these valuable insights. Another one. Obsessed with humiliating successful, kind, and cheerful people. Delighted by the idea of breaking up friendships and marriages. If you work hard to maintain interpersonal peace in your life, they will make it their mission to uproot all of it. Just a couple left here. They expect you to read their mind. If they stop communicating with you for several days, it's your fault for not knowing about the plans they never told you about. They will always be a self-victimizing excuse. There will always be a self-victimizing excuse to go along with this. Selfishness and a crippling thirst for attention. They drain the energy from you and consume your entire life. Their demand for adoration is insatiable. You thought you were the only one who could make them happy, but now you feel that anyone with a beating pulse could fit the role. However, the truth is, no one can fill the void of a psychopath's soul. And the last year, your feelings. After running with a psychopath, you will feel insane, exhausted, drained, shocked, suicidal, and empty. You will tear apart your entire life, spending money, ending friendships, and searching for some, for some sort of reason behind it all. Note, these red flags have been updated based on survey responses from more than a thousand survivors. You'll find that normal loving people do not raise any of these flags. After an encounter with a psychopath, most survivors face the struggle of hypervigilance. Who can really be trusted? 
Your gauge will swing back and forth for a while like a volatile pendulum. You will wonder if you've gone absolutely mad, wanting to believe the best in an old friend or a new date, but feeling sick to the stomach when you actually spend time with him. Developing your intuition is a personal process, but I would leave you with this. The world is mostly full of good people, and you don't want to miss out on that because you've been hurt. Spend some time getting in touch with your feelings. Keep tweaking until you find a comfortable balance of awareness and trust. Look within and understand why you felt the way you did. You will discover that many old relationships may need revisiting. And as you begin to to abandon toxic patterns, healthier ones will inevitably appear in their place. To quote a longtime member and friend, Phoenix, you will stop asking, do they like me? And start asking, do I like them? So, we don't have much time left for tonight, but I wanted to uh, play one more song, and it's uh, called Adagio by Perina Cincinato. She's a former colleague of mine at uh, Conflict Mediation Services of Downsview. She's a semi-professional singer, sings in at least four languages, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, uh, Spanish, Italian, English, and Portuguese. That's it. And so listen to Adagio. I gotta close out the show for tonight and uh, hope you uh, liked it in some way. So we're gonna be back on air as usual next week on Sunday, the uh, July 10th. So thanks for listening. See you sometime. Bye bye.